This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. So, you've made the decision to eat healthy, and that means more fish. But are you getting what you're paying for? A new study finds nearly half of seafood samples from Canadian grocery stores and restaurants were not what they claim to be. The advocacy group Oceanic Canada did the testing and found 44% of almost 400 seafood samples from five Canadian cities were incorrectly labeled. And people who thought they were getting sea bass or cod or wild salmon were in some cases getting far cheaper catfish, pollock, or even, disturbingly, a fish dubbed the laxative of the sea. What's more, 60% of the roughly 400 samples collected from retailers in Vancouver, Victoria, Toronto, Ottawa, and Halifax were found to carry potential health risks. What do you think of that? And uh, more important, what can we do to protect ourselves? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 744-740. And right now, let's go to Oceana Canada's Executive Director, Josh Logren, and the University of Guelph's Biodiversity Institute's Associate Professor, Bob Hannard. Welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Okay, let's start with... Uh, Josh, uh, Josh, uh, this is not the first time you've done this study, but uh, what's different this time around? Well, this one we it was the the broadest one that we've done, uh, covering five different cities and the largest amount of samples. Uh, I mean, really, what we did was confirm with greater numbers and uh, than. Uh, the trend that's been there for several years that uh, Bob, for example, has been working on for a long time, uh, that seafood fraud is prevalent around the world and here in Canada, and we don't have the regulations set up here to, to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob or Josh, I'm not sure who can answer this, uh, this business of 60% uh, having a health hazard, what type of a potential health risk are we talking about here? Um, the potential health risks are uh, varied, uh, and there are potentially a number of them. As we've done some of this kind of market surveillance and found fraud, uh, for instance, in the uh, study that Oceana did in the U.S., some species that were on the FDA do-not-eat list for sensitive persons uh, were being mislabeled as other species, so things that can bioaccumulate uh, heavy metals, things like mercury. Uh, so, you know, you may not die from eating that one fillet, but we know that the chronic long-term effects of exposure are not good, uh, hence why some of these species, like uh, tilefish, uh, you know, are put on these kinds of do-not-eat lists for, for pregnant or nursing mothers. 
So that's one aspect uh, that we've seen. But also where we see this challenge of people thawing, repackaging, and deliberately mislabeling seafood, if we can't believe that the name is accurate, why would we necessarily believe that the cold chains have remained intact for some of these species? Um, we've got some uh, anecdotal and uh, currently unpublished evidence to suggest that mislabeled fish has more spoilage bacteria associated with it. Uh, that's you know, uh, proper cook. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was saying that's uh, that's interesting and and fairly scary. Uh, what about Josh? Uh, this. Uh, nicknamed, and I know it's lunchtime, so people, I apologize, but uh, what about this laxative of the sea? I think it's Escalar. I've never heard of it, and I eat a lot of fish. Yeah, and you have eaten it, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Thanks. It's, it's, uh, it's a pretty common uh, substitute for things like butterfish and white tuna. As a matter of fact, I think uh, uh, almost all of the butterfish and white tuna that we sampled was 10 of the samples of butterfish and 10 out of 15 of the white tuna samples actually turned out to be escalar. And it can cause, especially in greater amounts, acute gastrointestinal symptoms. And why uh, is that? Why is that? From uh, what in the fish? I'm not so sure. I can, uh, Over yeah, to Bob I can, on that one. Yeah, I can address that. So escalar contains a waxy ester, uh, in its flesh that is indigestible for about half the human population. So eating more than a couple of ounces of, uh, of Escalar will give you kind of orange diarrhea, stomach cramps. Um, and for this reason, we've seen uh, some sectors like Japan and Italy actually ban it uh, from their markets. It's still allowable for human consumption, both in Canada and the United States, but it should be labeled as Escalar, not mislabeled as a more expensive fish. Mm-hmm. So is this all basically just about money? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we did is we went to, um, to online retailers that sold you know, all the different kinds of the same fish in the same in the similar forms. And when you see catfish sells for about $11 for, per kilogram and sea bass sells for $113 per kilogram, uh, you, you, you can see right away where the incentive is to do a substitution. Or Atlantic salmon at $37 a kilogram, if you can substitute that for sockeye and call it sockeye salmon at $101 per kilogram, um, you know, somewhere along that value chain, uh, someone's spotting an opportunity to um, make some more money. Well, with a lot of these things, there's varying price points. So let's take salmon, right? Uh, there's a different price for salmon fillet, salmon steaks, whether it comes from the Atlantic or the Pacific, whether it's farmed or wild or organic. Uh, so would, would there be a lot of mislabeling with, you know, among those categories? Yeah, we certainly found that was one of the fairly common substitutions was calling um, farm salmon wild salmon. Uh, you know, one for two reasons, I say, well, I mean, we'll allow that perhaps there's some just uh, innocent error there, but that you can see the incentive for price. And also, uh, many consumers would prefer not to have farm salmon because of concerns about things like antibiotics. Uh, so you increase your likelihood of selling it and for a higher price by, by switching it over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that 
strikes me is uh, the naming of certain fish. I mean, I think that bass and snapper can apply to many, many different species. And I know that there's, you know, there's snapper and there's snapper. There's one called rockfish, I think, that, that looks to be sort of way cheaper than the other kind of snapper. What about all that? Bob, you want to take that one first? Yeah, sure. No, it's a a really interesting observation that you raise. And so uh, what we have here in North America, both in Canada and the U.S., are uh, regulatory lists of what common names can be applied to what different species. And so when we do these kinds of DNA-based studies, we confirm a species ID, and then based on where that commodity was sold, we use their regulatory framework to look at whether or not that market name was appropriately applied. And this regulatory framework sets up the space for some uh, additional kinds of vagaries in that, you know, more than 20 different species can be labeled as sole. One of the things that I think is problematic from a marine conservation perspective about the use of these vague market names is that it's masked patterns of exploitation of different species through time. So what do I mean by that? Well, when we test uh, sole, for example, we find things like tilapia that are not allowed to be called sole, that are fraudulently mislabeled as sole. But many of the species that could be legally called sole in Canada, we've never detected in the marketplace. So as one flaky white-fleshed species of fish becomes uh, consumed to the point of a fisheries collapse, uh, we have petitions to add another flaky white-fleshed fish that's still available to the list and allow it to be called sole. So from a consumer perspective, you know, grandma cooked sole, mom cooked sole, I can go and buy it in the grocery store. It must be a plentiful fish. Uh, but we've kind of masked the fact that some of these species that we can call sole no longer even show up in the marketplace, uh, presumably because they're so rare now that there, there isn't a, a fishery. And that's part of why we want to draw attention to this problem and where we've seen the Europeans move to including not only a market name, but also a species name as a best practice in helping consumers know exactly what they're getting. Okay. I I like to cook sole, and I know that sometimes I see cheaper ones that are lemon sole or gray sole. I'm trying to remember the name of the expensive stuff that I get. It's not Dover sole. Um, I mean, it, it comes so rarely that the fish market, they call me when they have it in. Um, so those are all, you're telling me that those aren't slightly different, uh, versions of the same thing. They're quite different, really. Absolutely different species, different abundances, different, uh, ranges commanding different market prices. So what we've seen traditionally in, in Canada, where we have a domestic fishery for things like the Pacific salmon, we have a one-to-one correspondence between market name and common name, uh, or market name and, and species. So, for example, you've got pink, chum, coho, sockeye, all of the different salmon that have, you know, different uh, flavor characteristics, different price points, different abundances, uh, potentially different catch quotas for fishermen. Uh, those have all been given 
different market names, and so we distinguish them. But things that aren't commonly caught by Canadian fishermen quite often get lumped. So this is the phenomenon you're seeing under sole, and we see it in you know, things like grouper. And some species of grouper are very valuable and have very different flavor characteristics than some of the cheaper ones. So these common names mask uh, a lot of biodiversity, a lot of culinary attributes uh, that we would like to see uh, more present. And that getting to that species-level naming convention, I think, is the only way we're really going to solve this problem. Okay. I want to give the numbers out again before we get to the critical question of, of how do we protect ourselves and, and what can be done to change this, because uh, I'm hoping that people don't stop trying to eat more fish because of news like this, because really it's an important part of a healthy diet. We should all be cutting back on the meat we eat, and it's a good protein. It's a lean protein. So I'd like to know, uh, have you tried to eat more fish? Do you get confused by the different prices and the different kinds of species? And does this kind of a thing worry you? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And back to our guests, what can we do to protect ourselves? Well, I think you really raise a good point. I, I hope that the response to this report is not that people stop eating seafood. Just as you say, I mean, as per Oceana, one of our taglines is save the oceans, feed the world. Uh, you know, we're going to have eight or nine billion people on the planet by 2050, or at least that's the track right now, uh, that need, many of them coming out of poverty who need healthy sources of protein. And, and, and fish and seafood can really help contribute to that. Fish can, you know, harvesting of fish contributes fairly little to climate change compared to things like uh, beef, for example. Uh, doesn't use a lot of fresh water or convert arable land. It, when done properly, it can be sustainable. Uh, we, we need to be relying on fish as a source of protein uh, to feed a hungry world. Um, but we also ought to be able to rely on uh, what it is we're catching uh, or what it is we're buying. Um, that is what we say it is. I mean, one of the things we've, as, as a global organization that concerns us too, is that this mislabeling is one of the ways that illegal and unregulated fish products get into the market kind of launders them so that the uh, the illegally caught fish that's caught outside of the quotas, often with uh, very bad human rights practices, uh, find their way legally into the market through through this kind of mislabeling and fraud. So when you get to the answer, the answer is not just for consumers to pay more attention and to be wary. The answer really is that the, we ought to have regulations and inspections in place with, inform, with traceability, with information about the fish that follows it from boat to plate uh, so that it gets for, you know, gives us that certainty and uh, eradicates a great deal of that illegal fish entering the market. Okay, let's uh, take a call from Gary and Sutton. Hello, Gary. Hello. Go ahead, you're on the air. I'm just uh, curious, are we talking about fresh fish or packaged fish or all fish? Who wants to take that? I'll give a stab. Uh, Certainly what we're talking about um, can take any of those forms. Uh, The sampling we've done has been both at retail establishments and food service outlets. Uh, I think where we see some of the most prevalent mislabeling is in, uh, as Josh mentioned, the uh, the butterfish and 
the yellow, uh, yellowfin tuna in sushi restaurants, quite often Escalar. Uh, I've seen things, we've done some testing to show some of the products uh, at the fresh fish counter uh, sometimes mislabeled. Uh, but certainly once a product is uh, skinned, filleted, breaded, and packaged, um, it becomes much harder for a consumer to visually identify the species. So, uh, you know, certainly we, we see this in frozen and packaged fish, but it's also in, in restaurants and at retail. So theoretically, then, I mean, if I go to uh, my Super Duper's supermarket and uh, they got all their fresh fish out there, uh, there's a 50-50 chance I'm not getting what I think I'm getting. Um, who's doing that? Is that the supermarket or is that the supplier to the supermarket? That's a really good question, and what we've done, uh, we have some unpublished data where we've worked with Canadian Food Inspection Agency to look at uh, seafood being imported into Canada, uh, wholesale, and then at retail. And what we've seen is that uh, in this particular project, we found uh, almost 20% of the things coming into Canada were mislabeled. But when we began to look at wholesale and processing, it jumped up to almost 30%. And then by the time we get to retail, it's nearly 40%. So there seems to be evidence that this kind of mislabeling can happen at multiple points along the supply chain. And this study that we've done with CFIA suggests that it's not all happening outside of Canada. Some of the mislabeling is occurring here as well. So it can be in your fresh fish and it can be your fish fingers too. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, when we did the testing, we did not publish the uh, retailers and restaurants where we did the sampling, specifically because in, uh, in many cases, certainly they too are the victims of fraud. Uh, with, you know, they're so not they're, paying, they they're paying higher prices at wholesale. That's right. So as Bob says, it, it, it's really impossible to, one of the examples we use is a fish could be caught in Canada, sent to China for processing, sent back to the U.S. for breading, and then enter the Canadian market as a U.S. product. <laughs> so, you know, and if, it's, if it is mislabeled or you know, substituted, where it happened along that value chain is impossible to say right now. So that's, that's why the, the importance of traceability is so key, about having information track with the fish all the way through with verification there. That's, that's exactly why. Oh. That okay, let's, uh, let's go to uh, Adrian in Peterborough. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. I'm, I'm calling because I had two incidences last year that I had been a long-time fish eater and adore eating fish, but uh, one time I ended up in the hospital after having um, smoked trout and smoked fish, uh, smoked uh, salmon. And uh, it was the same kind of reaction. And I'm wondering if that could have been Escalar. And just a minute, where did you get the smoked salmon from? Well, the smoked trout was the first meal that I had where I had a reaction, and it was in a restaurant. And then the second time was at a friend's house. And the first time I thought it was food poisoning, and then I called the Department of uh, Health. And the second time... I knew that my friend's kitchen was clean, so I knew I had a problem. So I've seen a um, an allergist about it, and he says possible gastroanaphylaxis from fish. But I'm wondering now whether it was Escalar. Uh, guys? My 
suspicion is no. Escalar is a white-fleshed fish, so it's typically substituted for things like butterfish or, or uh, white tuna. But mm-hmm. when, one of the challenges that we've seen, as I mentioned earlier, with this problem of some of the mislabeling and, and potential uh, spoilage bacteria creeping in as folks are clandestinely thawing, repackaging, and relabeling products, uh, there is that opportunity there uh, for a reaction to some of the, the foodborne pathogens. And I recently read a statistic that something like one in six of all uh, foodborne outbreaks that uh, can, Canadian consumers experience traces back to seafood. Uh, so, I, it seems to me that smoked salmon, uh, which if you buy it in the supermarket, it's frozen, is, could be one of those things that gets thawed and, and refrozen. Am I wrong? Potentially, I, I would say that, I would say there's a big potential for that. And in some of the the work that we did with our our collaboration with the CFIA to look at multiple points in the value chain, suggested that um, in some instances when they were looking at chain of custody documentation, some of the products that we discovered were mislabeled had also been. Uh, declared as uh, fresh, but it in fact been previously frozen. So coming back to Josh's point about that issue of transparency and traceability in the supply chain, uh, we're, we're not there yet with seafood, but we need to be. Okay, Adrian, I hope that answers your question. Let's go to Bruce in Mississauga. Hi, Bruce. Thank Hi. You. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, what I, my, I had a, a couple of questions. My my first question is: What what country is 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 known to be the worst for for mislabeling and and supplying uh, seafood that's that's not exactly what it is? Is there one particular country that we should be aware of? That's a good question, and I don't think we've had enough comprehensive data to answer that question. And in part, as Josh mentioned, with the example of things moving from country to country through uh, the processing uh, and redistribution, um, I think the the more appropriate question would be, you know, which suppliers uh, rather than a country per se. One study that we were uh, involved in recently that looked at a specific commodity, in this case cod. We sampled cod from all of the North Atlantic countries that have a cod fishery. And this again was sampled at retail. And in that case, it was interesting to see that Estonia had the highest rate of mislabeling. More than 60% of the cod in their market uh, were mislabeled. There were other species being sold as cod. Uh, whereas Denmark and Canada were kind of tied for second and third place, about 20% of the samples we tested from those countries were not actually cod. Did you say Canada? Only, yes. Wow. And the only, the only country where all of the cod that tested to actually turned out to be cod was Iceland. Yeah, and that's why Icelandic cod is the most expensive. <laughs> but, it, but at least you can figure that it's cod. But don't they dry it like they... That's that's a diff- that's different. That's salt cod. I see. I guess the only other thing I was going to say was I was talking to my local uh, manager of my grocery store, and I noticed there was always these huge, nice-looking pieces of tilapia. And I said, what about this stuff? And he says, it's really, really fatty. He says, I don't eat it. Yeah, a lot of people say stay away from uh, tilapia. Bruce, thanks for your call. Okay, uh, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thank you so much, Bob Hanner and Josh Logren. Appreciate it.
A pleasure. Okay. A pleasure. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.